Hey, welcome to the Urban Crofters podcast. We're a church family based in Roth, Cardiff, seeking to connect, create, and transform the community around us, kingdom style. We hope you enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to this session for Urban Crofters, and let's pray as we begin. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of gathering together in your presence and of considering your word your call in our lives and we pray lord for your holy spirit to speak to encourage to comfort to challenge each one of us in jesus name amen so uh we're taking a little pause from our series on joseph we'll get back to that next week but um i thought it was important this week um when the week is framed really between the Monday celebration of International Women's Day um, and then the end of the week framed uh, by Mother's Day. And so it seemed appropriate that uh, we should take the theme of womanhood and consider a little bit of um, the theology of gender. The, um, the title for this year's International Women's Day was Choosing to Challenge. And uh, specifically, there is a bias, discrimination, and stereotypes. I think we'd all agree we want to work together to challenge these areas. And uh, it's interesting too to reflect upon uh, Mother's Day as a feature in our annual calendar um, and to think about its origins for a few moments. So uh, Mothering Sunday always happens on the fourth Sunday of Lent. And it's really been something that has um, featured through quite a lot of church history, but in fact, not to do with our earthly mothers, but to do with our mother church. In other words, the church where we were baptized. So it was the tradition through the centuries on the fourth Sunday of Lent that wherever possible, people would make the pilgrimage to worship at the church where they were baptized. And in making that, that pilgrimage, they were affirming the significance of the sacrament of their baptism and how that had um, had an influence upon shaping their lives of faith. So um, traditionally, through many centuries of Christian history, it's been about an affirmation of personal Christian faith rather than anything to do with mothers. Um, I uh, read the Wikipedia article about Mother's Day and uh, there's reference made to uh, a woman called Constance Adelaide Smith who um, was a high church Anglican and who became passionate about wanting to revive the significance of Mothering Sunday from about 1913 onwards. She apparently read an article, um, which I think was published in America, where there was a move going on to create an annual Mother's Day celebration. And in fact, Woodrow Wilson, the US president, created Mother's Day for America uh, from 1914 onwards, and uh, in America, it's the second Sunday in May. So um, Constance Adelaide Smith was inspired by this initiative in America. Uh, she continued campaigning uh, for the uh, revival of Mother's Day, and she wrote a booklet in 1921, exactly 100 years ago this year, called The Revival of Mothering Sunday, and in it she um, wanted to bring to people's attention four themes that she felt were important. The mother church theme, which had been traditional through Christian history, the theme of mother nature and just affirming uh, God's creation, 
Mary, the mother of Jesus, remember she was an Anglo-Catholic Anglican and Mary is a very significant figure, remember, in the theology and practice of people of that persuasion. And also, fourthly, our own mothers. And of course, you'll realize through the decades that have followed that the first three themes have really uh, been forgotten largely. And now Mother's Day is simply about the very important um, tradition of expressing gratitude for our mothers. Um, in my experience uh, in church ministry, uh, of course, what, is ha what happens on, on Mothering Sunday is that we celebrate everybody uh, who's female in our gathering, and rightly so. Uh, it's not simply a celebration of motherhood, uh, giving thanks for mothers, but it's just wanting to celebrate everybody uh, who is female amongst us. And um, that's what I would like us to explore on this week and in our Sunday discussions. Uh, so that we're going to broaden out our Mother's Day celebration to be in that sense of actually, well, let's delve a little bit into the theology of gender. We can do the same from a masculine perspective on Father's Day, I hope. So uh, what are some important considerations? Well, uh, I think we, we want to say that we want to be people of uh, BBC, which stands for uh, Balanced Biblical Christianity. Uh, that's always my desire in terms of biblical teaching and preaching is that we have a balanced biblical approach. Um, and we should do so in relation to gender. It's an important area of consideration. Um, we certainly need courage to explore cultural insights that bring added wisdom to our Christian reflection upon gender theology, while also exercising caution to resist some cultural perspectives that may contradict or undermine biblical wisdom. So there has to be that sense of dialogue with culture, doesn't it? That we want to be open to what culture is saying, but we also want to be uh, critical in our reception of cultural perspectives. I believe the Bible needs to retain its authority uh, in our Christian dialogue with contemporary culture. It's clearly a very complex field of exploration um, and uh, I don't want to downplay the complexity of theology of gender and how we uh, express that and practice that. Um, all of us are involved in a lifelong journey of reflection and growing, deepening, broadening understanding of what it means to be a man or to be a woman created in the image of God. Um, so really what I would love for us to feel is that this is a, um, creating space for conversation, for dialogue that might facilitate learning from one another. Uh, I know I've got plenty to learn in the whole area of understanding gender more fully and more deeply. I want to say that I would like us to focus on gender identity and gender roles in this discussion and not on marriage roles, marriage relationships. Um, that's a very important and interesting area of discussion for us, but I think we should just try and focus particularly on gender identity. Um, not least because many of us are single people um, and it's really important aspect of Christian theology that human flourishing should be um, seen as uh, being something we can explore in the context of both singleness and marriage. Let's not forget that Jesus himself was single, never married, and yet lived the most um, fulfilled and glorious human life that's ever lived. So um, human flourishing does not need ever to be confined to the realm of just thinking about marriage. 
Um, I want to say too that in our discussion, in our exploration, it seems to me that both genders are relevant in this exploration. Um, and if we're discussing together how women can fulfill their true redemptive potential in Christ, then we also have to reference men fulfilling their redemptive potential as well. Each gender is always going to be experienced and lived in the context of relating to uh, the opposite gender. Female flourishing, therefore, is only really possible in the context of male flourishing. So I believe that's why it's important. And some of what I say that we're referring also to the uh, theology of masculinity. Okay, so we've used this um, redemptive framework a few times in our explorations over the last six months or so. Um, creation, fall, restoration, consummation, the four big um, episodes, if you like, of uh, God's redemptive story. First of all, thinking about just um, summarizing the creation aspect in relation to gender, that God's original intention was for equality but distinctiveness between the two genders. Then in the fall of humankind, we see a distortion of that God-designed complementarity uh, of the genders, leading sadly and tragically to abuse of women by men, by men uh, through history. Deception also for all of us to some degree about gender significance, gender identity, and a lot of widespread confusion about gender. The restoration phase that we're now in is a phase in which we can partner with the Holy Spirit, who wants to bring a renewed understanding of gender complementarity with bold reforms of what is deeply inadequate. And then the consummation uh, when there will be a perfect restoration of God's order on the new earth, including gender identity, gender complementarity. So let's just focus a little bit on um, the biblical basis for these theological principles. First of all, the original blessing of women being created in God's image. Genesis chapter one, verse 27, we read, God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. There's an affirmation there, isn't there, of the sense of the complementarity of the genders. Um, and uh, it's interesting, within Christian uh, study, there are those who would want to downplay the complementarity of the genders. I feel that it's important to affirm gender complementarity. The genders are distinct but equal. And to affirm wonderfully the fact that women are created in the image of God. And so therefore, it's only the combination of the fullness of godly womanhood together with the fullness of godly manhood that can fully represent the image of God to the whole of humanity. Men can't represent uh, the image of God on their own. Women can't represent the image of God on their own. Together, we do so. So then we move to chapter two of, of Genesis and we see here the origins of a complementary partnership between men and women. So we read at verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. 
Now, the source of the bone, I believe, is significant in this Genesis narrative. The bone is taken not from the foot of Adam, indicating that men should trample and rule over women. The bone is not taken from the skull of Adam, indicating that women shouldn't rule over men. The bone is taken from the side of Adam, indicating that women are equal with men and a complementary partner. So it's fascinating to consider, to reflect this wonderful theological principle here that God has created women in his image and that women therefore represent aspects of the character and nature of God uniquely. And so um, I want to just wade out into uh, these waters of um, gender theology to consider some aspects. Um, and this will be a really interesting discussion, I believe, on Sunday. So uh, these are my opinions. I don't think we can necessarily make a, a cut and dry biblical case for any of these. But these are my reflections in terms of just uh, partnering with women, observing women, observing girls in terms of what's natural in their development. Um, and then thinking about, you know, what's true in terms of like... Um, uh, watching teenagers and secondary school education, etc. What's natural and easy for them to do and to embrace? So, um, and seeing how these relate to aspects of God's character. So here are my suggestion of a number of distinctive features of what I see in women. First of all, the way that women represent God as community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's remarkable, remarkable to me how women spontaneously and easily build community build friendship. Uh, there's a very stark contrast between um, girls and uh, boys, particularly in the teenage years, um, in terms of their capacity to build friendship and community. And I believe that carries on into adulthood as well. Secondly, God revealing uh, his nature as a mother. Clearly God is father, but he's also mother. And all that is right and good within motherhood is contained within the Godhead of Trinity. And so the natural feminine instinct for nurturing the young that we see in women, I believe, is mirroring, reflecting that aspect of God's nature. Thirdly, God expressing emotion freely. We see God expressing joy. We see God expressing sadness. We see God expressing anger through the scriptures. Um, and I believe that women reflect that divine characteristic in their emotional honesty, their emotional expression. Um, I believe women much more naturally express their emotion compared with men. It's not to say that men don't, it's just it's easier and more natural for women to do so. And all of these things, there is an overlap between the genders. I'm, I'm just trying to draw what I see as being distinctive amongst women. The next one I see is God's compassion following on from the expression of emotion. Um, and that women, I believe, demonstrate emotional intelligence and emotional understanding more, more naturally than men do. Again, it's not to say men can't. I just see women doing that more easily, more naturally or naturally empathic. Uh, just an example of that yesterday, can I say, in terms of uh, a 
a conference call, Zoom call amongst um, a large number of vicars in the diocese, something like uh, over 60 vicars joining together in a meeting with the bishop. Um, and when people were expressing uh, emotional pain and trauma, uh, it was women who were immediately on chat within a few seconds. There were two or three women who were immediately typing their empathic response to those who were expressing uh, um, uh, vulnerability. Not to say that men weren't feeling it too, but it's interesting the women were the ones who leapt in first to express that sense of, of emotional understanding in that situation. The next one I want to um, highlight is the way that Jesus models servanthood. And I see amongst women just a natural readiness to serve humbly, to serve wisely. They don't need to exercise power or control in the situation. That's not important to them. What's important is working together collaboratively in a servant-hearted way. And then uh, the way in which God has created wonderful colors in creation speaks to me um, about the way that women can represent that in their amazingly colorful creativity, just the wonderfully colorful clothes that women uh, want to wear, enjoy wearing, that's not seen so much amongst men. Now, if you put, those are six characteristics that I see uh, are divine characteristics, part of God's nature and character, reflected and expressed, particularly uh, extensively amongst women. And if you put all those together, I see Trinitarian teamwork going on. That is teamwork that is creative, collaborative, servant-hearted, nurturing, emotionally sensitive, emotionally engaged. All of those characteristics, characteristics together um, can be woven together into being the most wonderful context for really effective teamwork between people. Um, again, not to say that men can't do that, but I do believe that women are able to model that, to demonstrate that much more easily, naturally, spontaneously. They don't have to try to do it. They just do it. That's the nature of giftedness, isn't it? We don't have to try. It just happens. Um, and of course, it's not to say that actually, uh, you know, women sometimes fall far short of those goals. Of course they do. That's part of um, the fallenness that we'll get to in a moment. But um, at their best, that's what I see being true and spontaneous amongst women. Now we get to the fall of humankind in Genesis chapter three. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, the, dis the clear point I want to make here is that both genders are involved in the fall of humankind. There might be a bit more narrative detail in relation to Eve compared to Adam, but Adam is to blame here just as much as Eve. We read here that Adam was with Eve um, and he was passive. Here is a deeply uh, ingrained masculine sin of passivity. Adam was with Eve and yet he did nothing. He said nothing to protect Eve, to advise Eve, to counsel Eve, to say, are you sure this is a good idea? He should have spoken up. He should have act brave, acted bravely. He did neither. So there's a major uh, part of the blame to rest on the shoulders of Adam. The consequences of the fall for women now. Further on in chapter three of Genesis, we read to the woman, God said, as a result of the fall, this is now God's judgment upon humankind, 
I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and this is important now, and he will rule over you. And so in the fall of humankind, in the judgment that comes, there is uh, masculine domination put in place, feminine subjugation towards men. Deeply tragic aspect of the fall. Um, gender discrimination becomes part of our fallen world. And, and uh, you don't need me to rehearse the implications of that down through the centuries. So we then move to the next phase of redemption history, that sense of Jesus coming to be the savior of humankind and his work of redemption. And I think there's a wonderful exploration to be had of, of recognizing the affirmation that Jesus brings in his life and in his, in his ministry. Um, and so a lot of the restoration of gender equality can be based for us as Christians upon the example and the model of Jesus. Jesus was truly radical in his brave boundary shifting treatment of women. A few examples for us. Uh, the way that he overcame social taboos in speaking with the woman by the well from Samaria in John chapter four, deeply significant. The way that he overcomes religious prejudice when he brings about that gracious forgiveness of the woman who is caught in adultery in John chapter eight. His courageous compassion to many significant women in need. I think of the woman who had the menstrual bleeding for 12 years and how he deliberately speaks affirmation and healing and wholeness into her life. Um, the way that he invested time discipling women, uh, particularly the sisters, Mary and Martha. Jesus had a very special place in his heart for them. Uh, you can read about that in Luke chapter 10 when he has a very significant conversation uh, with Martha. Um, while he's having a deeply significant conversation with Mary. Um, and then the way that he included significant women in his ministry team as well. Luke chapter 8, the verse, first few verses are fascinating. The 12 were with Jesus and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. That's fascinating to me, that Jesus should include these women in his team. And then I think it's very significant that the, the, the father affirms women's ministry in um, setting up the circumstances that the resurrected Jesus would appear, first of all, to two women and not to any men. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. If you want to read the account, Jesus appears to two women. That's very significant in the culture, which rejects often the testimony of women, that the first testimonies of the resurrected Jesus should be amongst women. So Jesus goes out of his way to affirm the significance of women. And then I think it's really helpful for us to consider some key uh, experiences uh, and roles of women in the New Testament. Um, Tabitha, also called Dorcas, is the very first person to be raised to life by the apostles in Acts chapter 9, a woman. Lydia, the very first convert to Christianity in Europe, a businesswoman from Philippi. Priscilla, the wife of Aquila, 
becomes one of Paul's team. We read in Acts chapter 18, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Now you'll find seven references to this amazing couple, Priscilla and Aquila, in the New Testament. I find it interesting that five out of those seven references, the wife is mentioned before the husband. They are missional community leaders, by the way, leading a home-based church community, which you can hear about and see reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. So with Priscilla and Aquila, we see a very helpful model of men and women joining together in ministry together. Now, um, I'm guessing probably in our discussion on Sunday, uh, somebody's going to make reference to Paul's limitations on women's teaching and leading uh, in New Testament times. What are we to make, particularly of 1 Timothy chapter 2? Um, verse 12, I think it is. <clears throat> and um, I would want to say that in my understanding of that reference, that text, um, that the context at the time is totally inadequate educational opportunities for girls compared with boys. Um, and Paul was very passionate about protecting sound doctrine in the local churches by prohibiting women preachers who would have been poorly educated, poorly trained, and therefore who could have led churches into uh, doctrine that was not properly thought through. So it was a cultural concession then that has needed radical reform ever since as girls increasingly and wonderfully have now received equal educational opportunities and training. So that's my reading of it. And um, clearly part of our kingdom redemption of fallen humanity is going to involve um, the fight for equal human rights for girls and women around the world. And um, that includes the educational rights of girls. So Malala has been absolutely brilliant, has she not, in terms of like, um, rising up as a, as a voice for the educational opportunities for girls, uh, particularly in Islamic um, countries. And then um, equal work opportunities as well, that there should be no gender discrimination between the genders in any workplace. Uh, voting rights for women as well. And, and so I think, uh, I think every nation now has given voting rights for women, which is wonderful. Um, but as you look into the reality of the expression of that voting right, there is a need for protecting that voting right um, through wise legislation. So if you read what uh, some entries on the internet about how women are able to express their voting rights, if men lay down uh, unhelpfully and inappropriately harsh domestic duties for women, which they cannot pass on to anybody, then quite frankly, it's gonna be very difficult or impossible in some cultures for women to ex uh, exercise their voting rights. They just simply haven't got time on a voting day to go and vote. So um, it's really important that, that societies, cultures, um, along with the legislation, are also uh, taking the appropriate practical steps to allow women to vote. And even worse than that, there can be intimidation of women at the polling booths uh, meaning that women have to be very courageous in stepping through that intimidation to be able to exercise their voting rights. So it's not just the case of legislation. It's also about whether women safely 
and practically can use those voting rights. Another aspect of kingdom redemption, there will be women representing God's nature uh, through their involvement in teams. And um, I'm sure uh, all the men in our discussion would recognize that when you've got mixed gender teams, it just feels better to have women uh, contributing in the discussion of how uh, projects can be um, planned and implemented. So that's one major part, I believe, of kingdom redemption of women being able to recognize clearly how they're created in God's image to manifest these wonderful divine attributes that bring blessing to the table. And as they do so confidently, courageously, creatively, imaginatively, that they bring blessing to that context of teamwork. And then in terms of like women stepping into leadership, um, I'd want to say that uh, I believe the Church in Wales, our denomination, ha has done a good job in terms of um, uh, promoting women to the highest levels of leadership uh, as bishops in our province. There are six dioceses in the province of Wales. Three out of those six bishops are women. Uh, I think I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that I think Wales is possibly the first province in the Anglican communion to have 50% female bishops who are overseers of ministry in each diocese. They are the lead minister, if you like, of that diocese. So um, I think we can um, hold our heads up high in the church in Wales in saying that there is equal representation at the highest level of leadership between men and women. So uh, some discussion questions. Is there anything you'd want to add to the ways women can distinctively represent the image of God? I've suggested uh, some points you may want to add to them. What challenges do con contemporary cultures pose for women? How can they be addressed? What challenges do women face in, in the workplace? How can they be addressed? What challenges do women face at church? How can they be addressed? And then I hope there might be time to pray for clarity, for wisdom, for courage um, to address the issues that we've been discussing, discussing. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, the opportunity we have to consider the important area of theology, uh, theology of gender. And uh, we pray in our discussion uh, together, we pray for sensitivity to one another, sensitivity to hearing different viewpoints, uh, uh, a readiness to, to learn, to grow, to adapt, to change in the light of what we sense your Holy Spirit say to each one of us. So I do pray, Lord, that this will be a really fruitful and meaningful opportunity for discussion amongst us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Urban Crofters podcast. To connect with more of who we are and what we do, visit our website at urbancrofters.co.uk or follow us on socials at urban underscore crofters.